0: I'm Christopher Leiden, This is Open Source. We've seen a lot of this movie before, have we not? The crackling threats to punish unproven charges. It was weapons of mass destruction the last time. Now it's some unverified damage to tanker traffic, maybe. Again, the case is being made, or has been, for a war of choice by a pickup coalition of the willing. This time it would be an alliance of Sunni Arabs with the U.S. and Israel against Iran. Out front beating the war drum is the man with the mustache, John Bolton, who has always loved regime change for Iran, who still defends the Iraq war, and now runs the national security desk for President Trump, dropping phrases like, unrelenting force against Iran if Iran should threaten or damage us. Part of what's familiar in the picture is that Congress is largely out of the loop and the sovereign people are not in on the argument at all. A lot of what you can hear on the news is circus stuff, like the president's lawyer here, the sometime mayor of America, Rudolph Giuliani.
1: The right policy for Iran, for every good, decent government in the world is regime change. Regime change. You. Regime change. Regime change. Absolutely. Let him hear it. Let
2: him hear it in Tehran.
0: The real news this week may be the Washington Post story, now in the New York Times, that President Trump thinks his staff, maybe Bolton, is trying to rush him into the sort of war that he campaigned against. So hold your horses this hour. And let's just see if we know what the war scare is all about. Paul Piller gets us started. He's a Vietnam veteran who worked almost three decades at the CIA, close to the top, where he could see presidents making policy, most particularly George Bush on Iraq, with minimal or zero interest in what intelligence saw coming. Paul Piller, welcome to Open Source. In the war planning today on Iran, and today and tonight, it's still breaking, What's new and and what's not?
1: Well, I think uh, the newest thing, and I would consider it a sliver of hope, is the reporting that you referred to, Chris, uh, that has the president uh, being frustrated and somewhat unhappy with uh, the hardliners on his staff. And we are talking mainly about John Bolton, but to some extent about Secretary of State Mike Pompeo as well. Um, and that he may come to see uh, that these individuals are taking his policy in a direction that is inconsistent with what was part of his campaign Mm. rhetoric in uh, in 2018 about uh, having fewer rather than more Middle East wars. Uh, We have seen uh, Mr. Trump get impatient uh, to the point of, dismissing someone i'm thinking of his former political adviser steve bannon when he came to be seen as you know driving policy more than the president was and my hope is that uh, donald trump will come to see the same thing uh, about john bolton and uh, separate him from from separate himself from that subordinate as well
0: so do we would you do we thank laura ingram for her tweet
1: uh, in, in a way, yes. Uh, and I, I r- think r-
0: Remind th- people who haven't seen it.
1: <laughs> well, go, go ahead. I can't, I'm not going to try to quote it directly myself. Well, no, I,
0: the Virtual quote. She said, the straightest path to a Trump re-election defeat is through a war in Iran. Right. Yeah.
1: Well, I, I, I and this, and this plays really at two levels. One is, and the president remembers what his campaign rhetoric was and what won him some votes, uh, two and a half years ago. Uh, But also, uh, you know, the consequences of a military conflict would go beyond, I think, what even Donald Trump would be thinking about, Uh, and especially if something got started, you know, in the next few months, which is what Mr. Bolton seems to want to do, the sooner the better, by the time we got to November of 2020, we would be well past any stage of mission accomplished and more into the... uh, commiseration about what do we get ourselves into, you know, about the same stage we reached in 2004, 2005 in the Iraq war.
0: Imagine, Paul Pillar, and it's not beyond the realm, that you were the CIA officer assigned to brief the president on the prospects in Iran and in a war with Iran. Sum it up for all of us.
1: I think the key points would be, uh, number one, Iran is not uh, on the brink of a new revolution. Uh, you played the clip about uh, Rudy Giuliani uh, chanting "regime change, regime change," mm-hmm. and and that obviously has been one of the goals of of Giuliani and of and a Bolton and a Pompeo. Uh, there's no question that there is unhappiness, <clears throat> especially over the economic conditions uh, that the <clears throat> Iranian people have, and they have a lot of unhappiness with the regime. But one of the things that this maximum pressure campaign by the Trump administration has done, is to deflect more of that unhappiness uh, on the United States. And uh, the Iranians in the street are no fools. They realize that uh, although there are multiple reasons for their economic hardships, including mismanagement by their own regime, right now the economic warfare being waged by the United States is probably the most important thing.
0: Can you imagine President Trump pushing back with you and in favor of military action? And what would you say? I mean, how would that go?
1: Well, I would, I would remind him, uh, especially if I were <clears throat> stepping out of a role as, say, an intelligence officer or a national security person, and put the political component in it to uh, remind him of what he said in the campaign and what would be likely to lose him votes in, in 2020. And I think that would be most likely to persuade him. Uh, and, and just about any kind of military conflagration, which would involve U.S. costs and casualties, and would not bring about, uh, certainly in any time frame that uh, he could imagine, a positive result that he could crow about. That this would all be a big, big political negative for him.
0: So you and I and sane people are rooting for some inner Donald Trump uh, against his staff. But then again, who did he think he was picking to run the NSA? I mean. Or or is he changing his mind as he goes, or is he eternally improvising, or what?
1: Well, you know, we're not talking about a well-thought hiring process. I mean, remember that uh, the the earlier reports about why Trump was hesitant to bring uh, John Bolton onto the payroll in the first place was that he didn't like his mustache. So we're not talking about, uh, you know, some well-thought-out... Grand strategy here, and then he picks the personnel to fit into it. Uh, I think the biggest explanation for why John Bolton got this job is that Donald Trump, back uh, actually starting during the campaign, made his peace with Sheldon Adelson, um, yeah. and uh, we've seen the results of that in. Trump's policy on Israeli-Palestinian matters. Hmm. And uh, Adelson was uh, very strong on the idea of having somebody like Bolton in this position.
0: So we should see beyond the mustache a sort of plant from hardcore Israeli right Sheldon Adelson.
1: I th- That's not all of it. But I, if I were to uh, try to identify one factor that answers your question about you know, why this person who now, according to press reports, seems to be going against, uh, you know, Trump's own inclinations, that would be the first explanation I would offer.
0: But again, about Donald Trump, are we looking at a man who's discovering caution, even political caution, or at a capricious president who just lurches from whim to whim, guided mainly by, you know, whatever he's seen on television that day, or, or, or by vanity?
1: Well, he's long since proven himself to be a president who goes from whim to whim. Uh, I think to the extent that there would be any kind of argument that would sink in, it would not be one of grand strategy. It would not be about uh, you know peace and stability in the Middle East. It would be those domestic uh, electoral considerations and that's why, going back to your earlier question, Chris, you know if I had the president's ear right now. Uh, in briefing him on this situation, that's why I would very quickly get into that part of the equation because I think that's what would get his attention.
0: So, you have his attention, and he calls um, uh, his national security guy, the mustache himself, John Bolton, into the room. John, remind us: what, what, why have do we? Why must we have an anti-Iran, edgy military threat policy?
1: But. What, what,
0: How does Bolton present the case?
1: Well, probably in two respects. One, there would be this sort of general sweeping, hey, boss, if you want to make America great again, every once in a while we've got to uh, beat somebody up beyond our borders, and it's a rough world out there, and if we shrink from doing that, uh, you're not showing America to be great, something along those lines. Hmm. And then there would be the more specific tactical thing. I'm I'm sure Mr. Bolton wouldn't hesitate to come up with whatever sort of... um, reporting there is, that he could spin into the idea that, yes, there are new uh, threats uh, emanating from Iran, and we're about to get uh, American uh, troops somewhere in the Middle East attacked by the Iranians. And we can't just sit back and wait for that. We have to act first.
0: The new Donald Trump on the news wires tonight is that he'd rather talk to people. He'd love to engage the Iranians in conversation about their government or God knows what. Imagine him and President Rouhani in a room together.
1: Well, you know, I I think this gets to something that is valid when when Trump talks along these lines. I think he does still want and dream of a, quote, better deal, unquote, than the Mm -hmm. Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, a.k.a. the the nuclear deal. And he really believes, uh, has an honest hope uh, that the pressure campaign is going to bring him to that point. Now, if I were... Who, Whose pressure room, campaign? Yes.
0: The, which, which pressure campaign? You,
1: well, the whole so-called maximum pressure, everything, the, the sanctions upon sanctions. Oh, I see. I see, I see, I see. Uh, you know, c- coupled with uh, the military saber-rattling, but we're mainly talking about the economic warfare, of the sanctions, and that at some point... In fact, I think the president, just in one of his comments just in the last day or so, said, you know, I think they'll be coming to talk to us soon, or some words to that effect. Uh, He thinks that they will be crawling back to the negotiating table and say, okay, uncle, we give up. Um, We're willing to accept some different kind of deal. I don't think the president himself has uh, thought much about exactly what such a deal would look like.
0: The Iranians are hurting, but they're proud. How can you imagine... Rouhani saying anything, but we negotiated that deal. It's not perfect, but it was hard enough the first time, and we're going to leave it exactly where it is. Paul Pillar, don't go away. Uh, we want you through this whole program. Delighted to have you with us. Paul Pillar's last book in 2016 was titled Why America Misunderstands the World. I read him mainly in the excellent Loeblog online. Coming up, the shadow of our Iraq war still today. This is Open Source. We're calling it John Bolton's War on Iran because he's always thought the U.S. should intervene to unseat the mullahs in Tehran. But now, what if he can't sell his boss, the President of the United States? Our guest, Hussein Banai, known as Huss, is a rising Iranian-American scholar of the relationship between his two identities, Huss. You wrote Becoming Enemies about the U.S. and Iran in the 1980s this week, husband and I, between war-war and jaw-jaw, where are we? Where are we going, do you think?
3: Well, it's really bewildering, isn't it? I think, um, uh, I was just stepping back today thinking about how on the 15th anniversary of the Iraq War, many of the same warning signs that uh, were blaring in our faces uh, in the lead-up to that war are so present and Prevalent all around us um, again. You know, Trump's uh, foreign policy on uh, many issues, not just Iran, is really a counterfeit version of longstanding Republican and, in some instances, bipartisan orthodoxies mm. and policies that have come out of Washington.
0: Counterfe- over the course counterfeit of last- meaning that's an interesting word.
3: Yeah, what I mean by this is that Trump's policies aren't so much driven by conviction or principle, much less through careful study. Or review, but rather by uh, an almost pathological desire to reverse and erase um, all Obama era policies and directives, uh, but really um, to, in the end, present a more cheapened and uh, uh, imitation of policies that we've seen before. Hmm. Um, and I think this perfectly explains the dilemma that we're in right now, I mean, this is a perfectly manufactured crisis with Iran right now, that is really born out of um, uh, uh, two seemingly divergent but overlapping uh, 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 policies or pathologies, uh, uh, you could say. Trump himself uh, seems to be um, uh, uh, driven by a kind of an antipathy toward Obama in one of the recent press conferences that he had. He evoked uh, former Secretary of State John Kerry's name seven times. Mm. He never fails to mention the president's name when he talks about how awful that deal was. But never once have I, as a a watcher of his words on Iran, have actually heard anything of substance on what particularly he opposed about the nuclear deal. I don't think he understands um, what Iran um uh gave up in that process and he only sees the dollar signs that went um Iran's way. That's one um, uh 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 set of uh impulses. The other um uh seemingly divergent but again overlapping set of impulses is pre- represented of course by Bolton and by which is a kind of a counterfeit version of an old neoconservative argument that is really upset about the Iran deal uh because it confirmed it conferred uh, legitimacy on the Islamic Republic and mm. brought it back into the community of nations, as it were, which is something that was uh, obviously uh, uh, not part of the plan. Iran and North Korea remain as the two uh, members of the Axis of Evil in the, in the camp of Bolton and Adelson. Mm. Um, and I think uh, uh, those two narratives, uh, which are really cheap imitations of stories that we've I think despairingly um, uh, have seen play out over and over again over the last twenty five years um, Huss, uh, uh, I'm, I, uh, colliding right now
0: how I 'm listening and thinking, are we not just stuck in a totally incredible scenario that we were offered in the Iraq war, which ended in a kind of miserable, miserable destruction of a country, and a kind of blank remorse in this country we still don't get it we don't get we don't we don't get the Democrats um, connection with the Bush war we don't get Trump's difference from the war if there was any such thing and here we are staggering forward
3: right I think you know in the popular imagination in the United States a highly curated one by the mainstream press um, and but also by uh, mainstream policy think-tank um, uh, uh, brains um, is the uh, uh, notion that the Iraq War, I think, was forgiven and perhaps forgotten on a technicality, um, that being faulty intelligence, right? We seem to have washed our hands off of that war by saying it was faulty intelligence, and even if it was tinkered with or manufactured, so obviously by its cheerleaders at the time, that was a particular peculiarity of those cast of characters. And since then, we've redeemed ourselves through the eight years of the Obama presidency and have not, moved not on. Not quite.
0: I don't think we even give ourselves that credit. I mean, Obama, correct. bless his heart, extended the the wrong logic of the Iraq War into Afghanistan and it's still
2: a war. Uh, uh,
3: uh, correct. I, that's the myth. Uh, that's, you're absolutely right. But I think that's the technical, uh, that technicality of faulty intelligence Um, you know, good people, as James Carville used to say of, um, Bill Clinton, a good man done a bad thing around the Lewinsky affair. You know, it's a central principle. Good people did a bad thing. Let's move on. Hmm. Um, but never looking at the enabling conditions, the institutional breakdown and decay that, um, not only led to that terrible war, but has followed it, uh, with full force. Um, you know, the media, uh, narrative on Iran, um, even if it's skeptical, fails to really offer any kinds of solutions as to how we may institutionally counter um, such blatant uh, uh, acts of aggressive executive power uh, by the president. There has been no piece of legislation offered by the Democrat as to how we may limit the war powers that the uh, uh, executive branch enjoys today. There's been no introspection into yeah. how the legislative branch um, um, has failed us over and over again. The only commission that has looked on the Iraq war was the so-called silverman rob commission on why WMDs were not found in Iraq.
0: Oh, so it's is too and- painful. Uh, you're reminding me of the Fulbright hearings in which John Kerry starred as a young veteran and threw his his medals away and said, who's going to be the last man to die for a mistake? Strangely enough, he became chairman of that same committee and, having voted for the war in Iraq, never held hearings on what happened. It's a monumental, uh, I don't know what, pit. But I I want to introduce, don't go away, I want to introduce Adil Najam in the studio with me. He's the Dean of Global Studies at Boston University, a celebrated teacher before this in international relations at MIT, and before that, in Lahore, Pakistan. Welcome. Thank you. Ideal, jump in where you like, or shall I? Shall I cue you as with, as you
4: wish? You as have I this wonderful
0: this. image which I've half stolen of three guys going into a bar in the Middle East: Bin Salman, a guy named Netanyahu from Israel, and a guy named Trump from the White House. What happens? And what's happened?
4: to whatever it was they hatched. Well, they called Bolton. They called Bolton to bring them drinks or whatever, but essentially to come and sort of help them uh, dream up uh, pressure on Iran. Uh, and in that sense, where I would like to jump in is that we've been making this conversation about as if it's all happening in Donald Trump's head. Mm. Uh, I think a lot of it is, but but and, and a lot of it may be um, um, Bolton and him pushing these ideas that he's always had. But behind that are these two large shadows. Bolton might be, you know, dismissed um, as a subordinate, but who's going to dismiss Netanyahu? And who's going to dismiss Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, both of whom dislike not just the nuclear deal, but Iran more vehemently and more deeply and for a much longer time, and I think are also influencing what we are seeing, including in whatever is happening in Donald Trump's head.
0: Bin Salman and Netanyahu dislike Iran for different reasons. Sketch it, the, the Very
4: different reasons. These three three men, if they do enter a bar, Bibi Netanyahu, Mohammed bin Salman, and Donald Trump, uh, what do they talk about? The, the one thing they talk about, the one the, maybe the only thing they really all three agree on, is Iran. They don't like Iran. They don't like the deal. They don't like... Barack Obama, because he got the deal, but beyond that, why they don't like Iran is very different, and my own contention is two of them probably would like a war. the third wouldn't, the third being Donald Trump, who probably is trying to play you know a game of pressure uh, and in his head, there is this sense if we apply enough sanctions, enough rhetoric, enough pressure on Iran, they're going to buckle and come and talk to me. The problem is this. Iran has been under sanctions for all my life you know if i when when was the last time iran wasn't under sanctions short time short time right 79 so so you can yes you can twist more sanction and you can twist more pressure but i don't think it's going to play out like that uh, in many ways you know all wars are unintended uh, i don't think iran wants a war i don't think trump wants a war uh, the problem is that wars once they start whether you want them or not something triggers and then you can't stop it. That gets interesting. Trump
0: has gone wobbly on his friends in the bar, but Netanyahu and bin Salman represent huge permanent interests in power, and they're still around. Where does this, this lust to do something serious to Iran yeah. go?
4: They have very stable, long-standing reasons for their policy. And right or wrong, that's not the issue because I think they have their own very solid reasons in their own mind. And Iran has very strong, solid, stable, consistent policy on how to deal with this pressure. So the only sort of unknown variable uh, in this is Donald Trump and his mind and John Bolton. And that's why I think we are we are talking about this.
0: Paul Piller, leap back in and husband I too. Um, what about this fundamental point that that its neighbors simply don't want to recognize Iran as a first-class nation, not to mention a thousand-year-old you know, dynastic empire? A
1: well, major player in quite history. A, quite appropriate for the conversation to go in the direction of talking about Netanyahu and Mohammed bin Salman because this is a major, major influence on, on U.S. policy, on everything in the Middle East right now. To the extent that Trump's policy is not just going from one whim to another or one soundbite to another, but you can identify, um, you know, a, a sort of larger scheme. In the Middle East, at least, that scheme is a highly manichean: divide everything into implacable enemies with whom we supposedly have nothing in common, and we can only crush them. Versus. Steadfast friends who can do no wrong and despite whatever they may do in their own policies, we never question them. And of course, uh, the Israel of Netanyahu and the Saudi Arabia of MBS are in that latter camp, uh, and Iran is seen as the, uh, the the chief bad guy in, in the first camp. When you get down to the specifics of exactly what those two leaders want, I mean, take, take Israel and take the, the specific issue of the nuclear agreement the fact that the nuclear agreement restricted uh, Iran's uh, nuclear program, closed all avenues to a possible nuclear weapon, is actually in Israel's strategic interest, as has been testified to by many senior Israeli retired security officials. Uh, So it is despite that, uh, you know, hard-nosed um, security consideration that Netanyahu uh, is doing his best to, to trash the agreement. Why he's doing it is, it's the is it, you know, anti-Iranism is the all-purpose distraction. Uh, whenever someone starts to talk about occupation of the Palestinian territories or a peace process, uh, the first thing you hear out of Netanyahu's government is, but the real problem in the Middle East, the real problem underlying everything is Iran. And so they want to keep Iran isolated.
0: Is it strategic, or is it in some sense, I don't know, uh, emotional that they that Iran must be a pariah?
1: Well, there's certainly a large emotional component, and there's no way that you know Israelis of any stripe are going to ignore the uh, you know the extremely hostile rhetoric that's been coming out of Tehran. Although I, I I might note the the hostility and the rhetoric goes two ways in that particular relationship. Um, but I think uh, you know, particularly now when uh, you know, there's the talk about uh, the Jared Kushner plan coming up, and 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 maybe Netanyahu is going to have to talk a little bit more about you know Wednesday, Tuesday, what's what's going to happen with the Palestinians, having Iran out there as the thing that he can return to again and again as you know the one uniting issue, uh, and the one thing that all. Everything wrong in the Middle East can be blamed on. Uh, it, it it'll be more valuable than ever for him.
4: Nadil. This is I, I think I think the point is exactly right. This this the the emotional part, let's look also at Saudi Arabia. For Saudi Arabia, Iran is this thousand year <laughs> shadow. Uh the it's empire that's Sunni and
0: Shia but it's also oil it, twenty four hours a day.
4: It it's also oil, it's also Sunni and Shia, but it's also that Iran was the great empire that Saudis think they want to be. And they look around their neighborhood and everyone else kind of uh, has bought into the Saudi oil money except Iran. So there is, there is, there is this very long, deep-rooted thing. For The question in, in my mind is, so what is, wh- why does Iran hold on and keep doing this? And for Iran, I think dignity is a very important part of this, uh, just like for others bringing down that dignity. Making them the pariah state is important. But here's, here's the question, Chris, for you and maybe your, your, your other guests. Why is—what is the U.S. obsession with Iran? I think part of that is also about dignity. Because I think—and I think, you know, what has Iran done to us? Uh, they haven't fought a war with the U.S., uh, Yes, they shout down with the U.S. and so on and so forth, but you count the number of people who might do that across the globe, and there are many. I think it is back to that memory at the end of Jimmy Carter, the coming in of Ronald Reagan, of the takeover of that embassy, that around which this curated sense that has talked about of our understanding of Iran and why the regime must change. For us, I think it is also about dignity. So this is a very Middle Eastern conflict going on, even in the American mind.
0: But it's in the American mind, too. I want to go back to Hus, but first just to say that I think it goes back before 79 to 1953. I think we all know, although we very rarely mention it in print, that we we broke Iran's post-war democracy in 1953. A CIA project led by Kim Roosevelt, no question about it, toppled a democratic regime, and installed the Shah. A very cruel time. Um, That's surely operating somewhere in a vision of us exporters of democracy. Husband I, how do the Iranians feel it?
3: Yes, I mean, there's no question that uh, 1953 casts a long shadow um, and a, 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 if you will, a non-sectarian or a a unifying one for the um, average Iranian um but the more immediate shadow obviously is the revolution itself, and I think the period of hostage uh, uh, crisis the iran iraq war which um not only cemented i think in the uh, minds of iranians uh american uh kind of insistence on iran's uh, second tier sovereignty as it well uh, um, uh, but only uh, uh, uh but but but, uh, but also a an imperialist country hell-bent on um, um, using Iran as a, a tool to advance its specific interest um, in the region. But I think uh, one point I want to come back to is on you know on Netanyahu. You have to remember um, he failed with two previous administrations. Uh, in the latter part of the Bush administration, in the summer of 2007, I've interviewed many of the Americans who were in the Bush administration uh, back then. Um, uh, he failed to successfully lobby uh the the Bush White House to carry out a bombing campaign on Iran's nuclear facilities before mm-hmm. it leaves office. And it obviously failed spectacularly with the Obama administration or never really um jailed well uh with the Obama team uh from the start. And I think this has been a very profitable electoral strategy for Netanyahu domestically to keep this hype up. Um, but uh, at a deeper level, I think it has become uh, his Moby Dick, as it were, um, mm. at, at the emotional level, that he would very much like to be part of his legacy, that he neutralized the Iranian threat, that, and by extension the uh, threat uh, from Iran's satellites um, in the region.
0: Is it still in his mind, you think? I guess so. We'll come back. Coming up, the foreign policy blob in Washington, meaning the two-party consensus that keeps getting sucked into wrong adventures abroad. And who's fighting the blob this time? This is Open Source. The Iran war scare heating up this week, then cooling, it seems. It gets covered among the mood swings of our president, but is there substance in that storm? The writer and Middle East scholar, Derek Davison had a striking piece on the Loblog site this week, arguing that the coverage of Iran is part of the problem, and that on this story, our newspaper of record, the New York Times, is more nearly the newspaper of wreckage.
5: I think the most egregious thing that the media tends to do when it covers Iran is that it portrays Iran always as the aggressor. You see this pattern happening over and over again, the notion that Iran is planning to mm. undertake some aggressive activity, even in the context of Iran potentially defending itself against an aggressive U.S. move, a, a military strike, an air strike or something like that. You can look at any map of the Middle East that has U.S. military facilities literally almost encircling Iran. By any standard of reasonable interpretation, the U.S. looks like the aggressor there, and yet the media here in the United States consistently portrays Iran as sort of on the attack, and the United States is just responding defensively to these Iranian aggressions. Bring it up to the coverage today
0: of, say, the discovery of an Iranian weapon in a boat. This is
5: taken as very significant. The problem that underlies a lot of this is that the media and the Times, again, is is very emblematic of this, tends to rely on the same narrow group of, of voices when they're talking about Iran. And those voices tend to be on the pro- regime change, pro-war side. So you've got people within the administration, you've got people from kind of narrow slice of the think tank community in Washington, places like the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. You know, these are people who have spent their careers basically trying to prod the United States into a war with Iran in order to change regimes in Tehran. The FDD, the Washington Institute community, have done a very good job of sort of cultivating reporters. They get newsletters out to the media every day, kind of driving the coverage, and they make themselves available and are known to these reporters as so-called experts. I get an email every day from FDD. Who are they? Yes, Foundation for the Defense of Democracy is an offshoot of the Washington Institute, which itself is an offshoot of APAC and the Israeli Lobby. They were founded in 2001. They have been consistently since then on the hawkish extreme of pretty much every issue, you know, calling for military interventions, uh, certainly for the Iraq War, calling for U.S. interventions in Syria, and above Mm -hmm. all, calling for the U.S. to put as much pressure on Iran up to and including military intervention as possible. They were staunchly opposed to the 2015 Iran nuclear deal and seem to have had a great deal of influence on the Trump administration's Iran policy. But as you say, they do an excellent job of kind of making themselves available and known. You see FDD experts quoted all over the place without, you know, a balancing view from the other side of the Iran debate. Make what you will of the coverage of John Bolton, Mr. Mustache. It's sort of amazing. I mean, John Bolton uh, has a years, if not decades-long track record of advocating military intervention in almost every situation, but particularly with Iran. He's got relationships with, for example, an Iranian exile group called Mujahideen al-Khalq, which is very pro-regime change, and he's talked at their conferences and said things like, you know, we're going to have regime change in Tehran by 2019. I think he said that a couple of years ago. Mm. He wrote a piece once during the height of the tensions about the Iranian nuclear program, to stop Iran from getting the bomb. Bomb Iran was the title of the piece. This is somebody who has an established track record. And not only that, has a record of spinning intelligence, if not outright fabricating intelligence. He was involved in the effort to spin the media to support the Iraq war. And that was only 15 years ago. And yet you have outlets treating Bolton as though he were somebody who could be trusted when he says that Iran is uh, engaging in this escalating series of threats and something has to be done or they're going to attack American interests in the Middle East. Uh, Instead of digging into that and really interrogating it, it just sort of gets treated as a reasonable statement from an administration official. But this is a guy who has a lot of stuff going on that should indicate to reporters that you shouldn't take what he says at face value.
0: That was Derek Davison. He writes online about history in the Middle East and North Africa. He says he does not read President Trump's Twitter feed. Matt Duss joins us in Washington, writing on the Think Progress site the last few years. Matt Duss has emerged as maybe the sharpest lance against the two-party consensus on foreign policy known as the blob speaking of the interventionist impulse in particular. Now he's on on staff with Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont. He got credit, a lot of it, for framing the debate last winter in the Republican Senate that cut off U.S. funding, at least for a while, of the Saudi war in Yemen. Welcome to Open Source, Matt Duss. What do you read and believe in this Iran saga?
2: Oh, well, I mean, there's a lot out there. It's hard to know what to believe, but you can kind of read the different sources and try to figure out where things are going. And, you know, listening to some of your guests just now, it's a really interesting discussion, you know, one thing I would bring up, and I don't know, I mean, this just broke over the last couple hours. And this was a report from The Wall Street Journal that showed that that reported that United States, the United States intelligence services and the military now believe that some of these actions that the Iranians were taking, which they saw as indicating a growing threat. In fact, were taken because the Iranians believed that the United States was preparing to attack them.
0: As so well, they, as, it, that, as well they might suspect that, right?
2: It, it's exactly right. It was you know a, a, a legitimate and you know a, well not perhaps not legitimate, but a, a rational and reasonable move in response to what they saw as an escalation by the united states the national security advisor john bolton who we've just been discussing you know going publicly to say i am moving an aircraft carrier into the persian gulf we're sending these bombers so the iranians very understandably saw this as you know something is coming and we need to prepare uh to respond and i think just this just shows how you know these kinds of moves when they're taken to show strength by one side are taken as just indication, Well, by the other side that there is a war coming and this is how we can very easily getting in, get into an escalating cycle of conflict that is very difficult to get out of. So uh, I'm very glad that it seems that President Trump has sort of pumped the brakes on this when it, he seems to have finally understood where John Bolton was trying to take him. Um, but it really does say something very troubling about the role that Bolton is playing here.
0: Well, Matt does, I want to know what your Democrats are saying. I don't hear their voice on much of any of this.
2: Well, I actually think, I mean, if you go out there, you. I mean, I would just point out a few you saw, you know, uh, Senator Robert Menendez, who's, you know, a, a fairly hawkish member of the Democratic caucus in a statement yesterday at the, S- at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And I think he's been on television a few times, you know, pushing back on the Trump administration's escalation, you know, citing the Iraq, the, w- the WMD falsehoods that were pushed out uh, to get the U.S. into Iraq. You've got Ben Cardin. Um, You've got Chuck Schumer. These are three of the most hawkish members of the Democratic caucus pushing back. Um, And one of the reasons they're doing this is because they are hearing from the Democratic progressive base um, Mm -hmm. that they absolutely do not want to be led into another war. Um, So I think, you know, even going back to President Trump's withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal last year, uh, and continuing to now, even though there is, you know, there's a range of opinion in the Democratic caucus, I think one encouraging thing over the past year and more is that there has been pretty strong Democratic unity in pushing back against Trump's escalation with Iran.
0: Pretty mild, I got to say, in my reading, I noticed Representative Seth Moulton from Massachusetts said in the House this week that the president should get Congress's approval for any hostilities against Iran. Senator Rand Paul, Republican of Kentucky, said much the same. He asked Secretary Pompeo for the same deference, you know, at least send us an, a, a copy of the orders, will you please? And he didn't get <laughs> it. But isn't all that well below minimum? I mean, for a young Democrat, well, I, especially an ambitious Democrat right. of Seth Moulton's experience as a Marine in Iraq, I mean, he's just barely asking the president to read the Constitution, that the Congress right. shall make war. Well,
2: well, I think that's, that's one way of looking at it. I think some other Democrats have a much stronger—I mean, my boss, Senator Sanders, has been pretty strong in his criticism and, and sounding the alarm on what's, what could be going on right now. But I also think that, you know, simply making the point that the, the president, the administration, must come to Congress and make the case publicly to the people's representatives about any thought or any plan for military action— Is very appropriate and puts the onus, you know, actually, you know, this is what the Constitution requires. Um, And I think this has been a big part of what, um, you know, the the Yemen debate, uh, as you mentioned, we've been having over the past year and a half, where Senator Sanders led on a resolution, a war powers resolution, to withdraw the United States from the Saudi led war against the Houthis in Yemen. And the whole basis of that resolution is that this war has not been authorized by Congress and therefore it's unconstitutional and illegal. Um, I think getting those constitutional Article I muscles working again has had a number of positive effects, and I, see we, I think we see the evidence for that in some of the comments from members of Congress in response I, I, I to ask. So I want to should... ask
0: Paul Piller about that. I mean, he, uh, Matt Duss is inviting the president to come up and talk about this in Congress. It didn't really start a, a robust debate on Iraq Paul Piller. I wonder if you think it's enough.
1: Well, I think, and much of what Matt's talked about is with regard to the constitutional issue of putting muscle into Article I is highly relevant here. Uh, As we saw in the case of the Yemen War Resolution, um, I think that is the particular issue that needs to be uh, that wagons need to be hitched to if you're going to get some support from the libertarian right, which you will on that. You mentioned Rand Paul. And on the Yemen resolution, although the presidential veto eventually was upheld, there weren't enough votes to override it. You know, there were, I think, about a dozen GOP members in the House, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you know, who supported the resolution. So I, I think um, th- this this aspect of the who has the right to uh, say we're at war um, and and what Article One really means, is very beneficially playing into discourse today that it didn't uh, to anywhere near the extent back in 2002 and 2003. Do, Do you,
3: sorry. Yes. please, Hasbunay. Yes, uh, if I may chime in for a second. I think one thing to me that is so glaringly obvious is that Democrats... Um, uh, uh, hesitance or timidity on coming even remotely close to defending the Iran nuclear deal, which is really at all not—it's uh, it completely set aside and is at the heart of the latest escalations that we see. I mean, to, hmm. uh, it says to me something that we are now basically, you know, uh, 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 or that democratic opposition is reduced to just ensuring that the you know president doesn't go to war and not really taking him to task for why it is that he can't he hasn't offered anything of substance as to what was wrong with the deal and whether iran was in violation of the terms of the deal and mm-hmm. whether the merits of the deal itself um have held up in the uh, uh, ensuing two years after um it was signed before the united states uh, withdrew from it it seems to me that it is really part of the problem here is that the opposition is not n- doing its job not nearly well enough to ensure that we don't get close to this point where, uh, you know, uh, 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 random reports of possible sabotage in the Persian Gulf could uh, quickly escalate into the deployment of 120,000 U.S. troops um, in the region. Matt, Dussin, um, Matt
0: I, I want Matt Duss's response here. I mean, there's more passion on the Green New Deal than there is on, hey, oh, by the way, let's not do Iraq war again
2: right well i would certainly agree that there could be more passion and attention and aggressiveness on the part of progressives and democrats in response to this um no argument there i would however just i would disagree that democrats haven't been mentioning the iran deal i mean just tonight for example there was um, you know, a Twitter exchange between Senator Chris Murphy from Connecticut and Senator Brian Schatz from Hawaii, making exactly that point. Senator Kane has raised that. I could run down the list of a number of others. And who what not was only the thrust inter- of it? It was basically saying, you know, Trump is now pumping the brakes on this escalation, saying he just wants a deal. We had a deal. Trump withdrew from that deal. Hmm. We had a very strong deal, and Trump withdrew from it and decided to escalate this situation, which is how we got here. So but there are in fact a number of Democrats, including you know my boss, who have been raising this issue from the moment this Trump decided to withdraw. Could there be more of them, and could they be making this case case stronger? I think there could be, um, but there have been quite a few of them making that exact point. Hus your turn but, but co- uh, co- compare that to the Republican. In the house
3: under Obama, inviting Netanyahu to address the joint session of Congress hmm. at the moment that uh, he was negotiating the deal with Iran—that's putting pressure. Why not invite the uh, uh, head of uh, EU's foreign policy or one of the leaders of the uh, P4 Plus One to Congress and really underline the merits of the deal? Why not be innovative at beyond Twitter exchanges and just underlining? that a deal existed at some point in time. Yeah, it I think you're also me. saying,
0: why not be theatrical, even as Netanyahu was?
3: Or substantive. Focus the conversation on the substance that is being tossed out the door here, so willy-nilly, so that we may be reduced to talking as to about whether Revolutionary Guards fired three missiles at a tanker passing by
2: or not as a pretext for war.
0: Matt, quick word. And then I want to hear from our wise man... Sure. No, I mean, I I,
2: I think it's, it's fine to bring up Netanyahu, you know, the stunt where the Republicans invited Netanyahu to speak to Congress. I mean, I agree. As I said, I think progressives and Democrats need to be more creative and more aggressive. There are a number that I mentioned who are doing that. There need to be more. But I don't necessarily want to see, you know, Democrats just reproducing stunts on their side. I think, as 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 House said, we want to make this substantive, and so I think there's agreement um, that we need to find ways to do that. Adil Najam. So From Lahore.
4: A <laughs> so last my, word of wisdom. My, 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 I don't know about wisdom, but my, my worry is that these Twitter exchanges, Democratic or Trump, are increasingly irrelevant to the region and maybe to the world. The Yemen war goes on not because of what goes on in Congress. U.S. didn't start or want that war. U.S. was dragged into it. Now imagine that happening in Iran. We are talking about all of this as if we are still in a world where the U.S. decides when to go in, how to go in, who goes in. I don't think this is that world anymore. This is not that region. Do we get I to decide the, when not to go in? I, I think the region is, might decide when we go in. This is, this this, I, this could, we are still talking for, about for as if we have. For example, Yemen. Yemen was not a war. Yemen is not a war that the U.S. planned. And it was a war it couldn't resist. And could Iran be that? So we are still talking as if U.S. is the only main player here. That may no longer be true. Who might be a successor? But what combination? Chaos. Do you see? Chaos in the region, which defines itself, is a force unto itself, and it can suck everyone in, mm. including maybe the great U.S. Next week, chaos.
0: Thank you, Adil Najam. Thank you, Hasbanai and Paul Pillar and Matt Duss, and Derek Davidson. Our show is produced this week by Connor Gillies, Adam Coleman, and the artist Susan Coyne. George Hicks is our engineer. Mary McGrath runs our war room. She is our war room. I'm Christopher Leighton. Join us next time on Open Source.